Welcome to the AJP podcast, a podcast that discusses current events, relevant topics, and emerging issues in pharmacy. I'm your host, Carly McMore, and together with my producer, Jared McMore, and the Australian Journal of Pharmacy, we are bringing you a podcast that draws on the opinions and expertise of pharmacists from all settings and experience levels. From those pharmacists who've already been a voice in the profession, to those who've never had their voice heard before. Pharmacist prescribing. Prescribing by pharmacists is a topic that is quickly gaining attention in Australia. And as a result, there are a lot of different positions and opinions. We've spoken to a number of pharmacists from Australia and overseas about their perspectives on pharmacist prescribing, what it would mean for the patients and the health sector, and how a model for pharmacist prescribing in Australia might look. Sam Kattenpah shares his view on the separation of dispensing and prescribing, the role of pharmacists in patient dose adjustment, and public health needs. In regards to pharmacists prescribing, I um, have the unpopular opinion that tends to start many conversations that I don't believe that pharmacists should actually be able to prescribe per se. I think that uh, that uh, ignores the fact that we should have a separation between dis- uh, between prescribing and dispensing. I think that's a very important safeguard. Um, that tends to get me some interesting looks from other my colleagues, but I. Um, I I honestly think that that's an area that we need to really have a look at whether there is a massive public health need for that and where we want to see. Saying that, my belief is that a lot of very vocal advocates on the other side in the the GP space don't want to see any expansion of pharmacist practice out into that and I think that's equally done as blindly as, um, as any other statements that are made. And that really upsets me because it's saying that we shouldn't have any role in the anything outside of dispensing. I would love to see more movement towards limited pharmacist dose change. I should be able to change INR doses if I'm doing point-of-care testing or if I've seen the lab results because it's, again, that same clinical knowledge. That's, I feel that is 100% in my scope of practice and any hospital pharmacist who has a good relationship with their doctor is already almost doing that on their behalf anyway. That's definitely something we can do. Similarly, in things like insulin doses, we're saying to the person you need to change the dose as per your blood glucose levels. So I'm taking someone who has had no postgraduate, no um, undergraduate training in medicines and then asking them to understand the results and change it, but then yet I can't look at those same results and change it on their same behalf. I think that's an area that we really should be investing in and then looking at are there limited scope where it's really needed. We give the example of prescribing the pill because it tends to have a lower clinical threshold for the doctors. They may not be reviewing it as much as um, as we as pharmacists would like them to. But then also how many, um, uh, how many of these do we actually have to do? I would rather see it in situations where a dose change around antibiotics or blood pressure tablets to a certain degree. There's a lot of other ones. We don't need to change the medicine. I'm just altering the dose because the patients are already doing this under their own accord but now they can do it with my support. And I think we would see a lot of better patient engagement and that that would lead to less visits to the GP for avoidable problems. And I've raised this with my GP and he loves it. He says, I don't want to see people with warfarin. I've got other things I need to focus on, much more complex patients than basically looking at an INR result and saying, take this at this dose for the next two days and then do another one. I, I'd 100% that that would be where I would focus our efforts rather than fighting for a, a blanket prescribing status. Um, And I will, though, always commend the work that the PSA have done in getting that discussion out there because I think that that is the right argument about expanding our role and that's 100% something we need to look at.
Cinta Johnson discusses the current management of Schedule 3 medications and greater responsibilities that pharmacists might recognise now. Uh, in terms of prescribing, before we get to uh, looking at Schedule 4, I think we need to look at how we manage our Schedule 3 medications. So to access a Schedule 3 medication, the pharmacist has to undertake a clinical consult with the patient and determine that that's the most appropriate medication for them, uh, which in my mind is exactly the same process that a medical prescriber would go through with the Schedule 4 medicine. But if we look at some of the research that's been done in Australia uh, around how we handle our Schedule 3s, there are plenty of examples of pharmacists not living up to the professional standards that we have. Uh, So there are plenty of people out there that I'm sure have worked in pharmacies where uh, the assistant picks up the Schedule 3 item, kind of waves it above their head and looks over at the pharmacist in the dispensary and says, they've had it before, and the pharmacist kind of eyeballs the patient and nods, and that's the the Schedule 3 consultation. And I think if we're going to manage Schedule 3 consultations in that way, then uh, it's a bit of a stretch for us to then ask for more responsibility. Uh, Obviously, there are plenty of pharmacists that do a great job with their Schedule 3. So if we can lift the bar across the board or if we have some sort of process for making us accountable in managing our Schedule 3s properly, then I think it'll make make it much easier for us to argue for greater responsibility around medications. I think I'd add to that by saying that in my research from my PhD, which looks a lot at uh, how prescribers make their decisions around specific medicines... Um, I've been comparing that to the literature on how pharmacists do it and my own interviews with pharmacists and I believe that pharmacists apply a much higher clinical threshold than many doctors do around certain medicines. So I think that's a really good thing to acknowledge when we do get into these discussions about pharmacists extending their rights into prescribing medicines, that where there is a guideline around this and and a Schedule 4 medicine, many pharmacists do not want to work outside that guideline and they will do very thorough vetting when they're doing clinical reviews, which may not happen in other situations. So I I definitely think we have the skills, but I I commend Jacinta on on raising the fact that we should be looking at some of the other ones we do first. Let's let's get what we're doing in check well now and then make a good push for for other things we should be doing. Sam Flood and Jared McMore discuss prophylaxis, diagnosis, prescribing and dispensing and worldwide experiences with doctors and pharmacists with examples. So pharmacists to be doctors. I don't know. That's the, yeah, that's an interesting thing. I, as an intern, I'm perfectly happy with doctors to be the ones who diagnose and prescribe and we check and make sure it's appropriate. But the prospect of diagnosing people and then prescribing is daunting, but definitely something a pharmacist would be capable of. Are they the same role? Sorry? Do you think they're the same role? Diagnosing and prescribing? So, no, go on. Well, there are actually some models. Um, it's not very widespread, but there are some models in, in some hospitals where as so the rounds are done with pharmacists and doctors together and um, there are some jurisdictions around the world where diagnosis is done by the doctor and once that diagnosis is made, they're referred to the pharmacist who then prescribes based on the best guidelines for therapy because one of the like there is a lot of overlap between doctors and pharmacists and one of my um pet peeves is when pharmacists talk about uh, a role that they undertake and and somebody else says if you want to be a doctor get a 
um, MBBS, and it's like I don't. I'm not trying to be a doctor. I'm being a pharmacist doing his particular role. But anyway, so doctors deal with the unknown very, very well. They deal with diagnosis very, very well, differentiation, um, and are quite skilled at at determining what's going on. Um, Pharmacists deal with facts very, very well, better than doctors do. When the known, uh, when, when you know something already, and then you pass that off to somebody else who who has the skills in in um, implementing the best treatment. That's interesting to see how that works out. Anyway, that's my two cents. Because I guess yeah, in a way we already do prescribe as far as S twos and S threes. Um. So yeah, expanding that somewhat would be manageable. I guess the first thing I jump to when you think of prescribing is yeah. Uh, medical practitioner prescribing anything and everything that they need to which is a daunt is a daunting prospect but if it was kind of a bit more within our scope of things that we're comfortable with diagnosing that would be yeah more reasonable there is an area that i i consider to be sort of prime prime real estate i guess for pharmacists prescribing and that is medications that are inaccessible due to their cost but the purpose for their use is not necessarily speaking a medical issue so the main one that i think of here is prep so you're talking about prophylaxis to prevent the transmission of a condition that can have a significant impact on person person's health the medication itself is a tool it is not a treatment and while there are some issues, so you have to have some pathology done from time to time for presence of viral um, RNA, but and also some metabolic checks because the medications can impact things like bone density. But you can imagine if pharmacists were accredited to prescribe PrEP on the PBS, you've got a person who may not want to have to see a doctor because they don't see their need for this medication as being a medical condition, and they could attend a, a community pharmacy and get the medication and um, be quite happy going forward. Mm. Michael Troy shares his views on emergency supply, extending scope of practice, and providing legal cover for what pharmacists are already doing. He also discusses Australian scope of practice versus the rest of the world and the patient journey, as well as conflict of interest and doctors' responses to the prospect of pharmacists prescribing. I'd love to see it. I had uh, on many fronts, so whether it's prescribing of um, antibiotics for a urinary tract infection, because that's effectively, you know, there's some arguments or models going about um, down scheduling that. Why don't we just go, well, give us access to the S4 scheduling? Um, Had a little old lady come in on a Friday afternoon going, I've got a UTI. I know I've got a UTI. I go, there's some urine. She goes, there's nothing I can do. I said, Try ring the doctor, try and get in, try and get an appointment for first thing on Monday morning, that's you know, three days away, um, or go and block up the um, hospital system um, and then get a script and then come back to me. Uh, you know. Show me any dispensary that is currently filling medications written by doctors and show me the judicious use of antibiotics by those prescribers now. And secondly, if you have somebody who has a, a, a very 
um, well-grounded approach and understanding of uh, antibiotic resistance who is then in a position to prescribe, I think you'll find that the, um, the excessive use of antibiotics would probably um, be tightened up rather than broadened. Mm. Yeah. I, I do think pharmacists, we've got the skills, we've got the ability, we've got the knowledge... Uh, I've said it before and I'll say it again, we're medication experts. We go through uni to be experts on medication. Um, I'd, yeah, I'd love to have access to, to, to prescribing rights um, because all I can see at the end of the day is um, improvements in health outcomes for our patients, uh, Australian citizens. Um, and I think pharmacists would do a damn sight better than some doctors out there. Um, you know, there was a comment in on Twitter about um, pharmacists being the cause of medication misadventures and my um, reply was that no, most of the medication misadventures occur because of poor prescribing by doctors. Um, and that was from a very uh, a position in the a person in a significant position of power in the uh, medical fraternity. Shane Jackson discusses changes in some prescription item scheduling, and discusses principles and uniformity in medication supply despite schedule. Shane also discusses the differences between collaborative prescribing and independent prescribing, and further education. Uh, going to pharmacist prescribing, so that's something I'm really passionate about because pharmacist prescribing goes to the heart of medicine safety. Uh, you know, we should have pharmacist prescribing by 2020. This is pharmacist prescribing of prescription medicines. Uh, we already have pharmacist prescribing for others, you know, pharmacist prescribing of uh, Schedule Three medicines. But from a decision-making point of view, there's no difference. You make an assessment... You decide on a treatment modality, you communicate that, and you monitor. It's the same process, whether it's a Schedule 2, Schedule 3, or Schedule 4. Yes, there can be more complexity as you raise the schedules, but the principles and the decision-making is the same. Uh, so I think we have a huge opportunity, um, and I think what people need to understand is that prescribing, so if we just focus on the Schedule 4 medicines, it's going to be quite a, a spectrum. So I think if you break it up into collaborative prescribing and what we might call autonomous prescribing, but I'll focus on collaborative prescribing first, again, that, within that collaborative prescribing, there'll be a spectrum. And if I focus around community pharmacy, uh, that's a great opportunity, I think, for community pharmacy to enter into collaborative agreements with uh, doctors and medical practices to be able to potentially uh, extend the life of a prescription if certain parameters are met. Uh, do prescription ad adaptation as they do in Canada, which is increasing or decreasing the dose based on pre-specified parameters, um, potentially adding new medicines in if that's part of the collaborative agreement. Again, coming back to collaboration. It's not pharmacists are just doing this. It should be part of a collaborative agreement. And then you've got autonomous prescribing as well, which you know, in my view would require significant postgraduate education, especially around the the, potentially the diagnostics uh, and the treatment modalities. But I think it's a, it's a good opportunity. Uh, if I look at what um, Minister Hunt has recently said about what he thinks Healthcare Homes version 2.0 might be, which is GPs seeing fewer patients for longer, then if they're seeing fewer patients for longer, then there will, will be a gap there 
for um, what I would term more routine discussions, consultations, and I think that pharmacy, in collaboration with general practices, can fill that gap uh, and ensure that the appropriate parameters from an assessment point of view are being met. Anthony Tassoni asked some pertinent questions about the differences between providing medicines in different situations and whether there is a real difference in the expertise needed to undertake these roles. Anthony also discussed the scope of pharmacist practice and how Australia is no longer a world leader when it comes to pharmacist innovation. Do pharmacists prescribe already? They do. And when we issue emergency supplies of prescription-only medicines, is that a form of prescribing in some respects? I think it is. Is that actually an extension of scope of what we're currently doing in in that manner? I'm just throwing the question out there. I I, th- I see it as a way of formalising yeah. what we're actually yeah. doing. And back to uh, some comments we've already made around residential aged care facilities. It's a way of providing legal cover for what we're actually doing. Yeah. So thoughts are pharmacists are doing a form of prescribing already. I see this exercise as a way of formalising, legalising um, what is already taking place. But sure, there are... You know, prescribing isn't as simple as continuing a supply. I, I, I understand that we're not necessarily talking about initiating a prescription medicine because, you know, in that terms of form of prescribing. In saying that, there are different levels of pharmacist prescribing that are in place across the world and in Canada. The province of Alberta is probably the, you know, the clubhouse leader and almost utopia of pharmacist practice in terms of what pharmacists can do in Alberta. And unfortunately, Australia, for the great benefits we have with pharmacist-only ownership and location rules in our regulatory framework, is, is really quite world-class. Our scope of practice from a pharmacist's perspective is uh, trailing the pack. The wooden spoon of pharmacist practice in some respects, unfortunately. I mean, just even just, just getting vaccination rights, um, you know, Uh, we're trailing the pack of a lot of developed countries. So I'm really encouraged that the forum's happening, that the pharmacy board is doing this work and and there's a lot of work being undertaken, I know, by major pharmacy bodies, Guild, PSA and others. I I, I think it's just sensible in the way forward. If we go back to, um, you know, what does the patient, uh, patient-led care, um, does a patient who's been stabilised on an antihypertensive um, you know, is it in their best interest to make them be inconvenienced in a way of of not being able to get to a doctor's appointment by a certain time, pay a, a certain out-of-pocket fee, then have to come back to the pharmacy and, and all that patient journey? Is that the best outcome in all instances? And I don't think it is. And if, if you ask patients, I, I think that, it, it, interestingly, patients supportive of the concept of pharmacists being able to provide a continuation of an already prescribed, initiated and stable treatment. Um, there was a recently announced inquiry um, of of pharmacy in Queensland. The Queensland government in, announced an inquiry and it, encomp- it encompasses a couple of different things, including ownership in terms of potentially establishing a pharmacy council or authority up there. But it also actually went to pharmacist practice. So this inquiry is actually looking at the scope of practice of pharmacists and is exploring the concept of uh, 
a form of prescribing essentially, which is with continued dispensing that is uh, has less barriers to it and has um, ways of continuing already prescribed treatments. And if you look at social media comments and other public comments from consumers and patients, they're quite supportive of it. And I think that this needs to be uh, explored um, because at the moment, what's happening at the moment, pharmacists are are legally allowed to give up to three days emergency supply in certain instances, but if they can't get a doctor's appointment within three days, what happens? We know what happens. Pharmacists are giving more than three days. And then they didn't get into the doctor's, so can I have another few days? What does the pharmacist do? They do it. So why is it that the pharmacist is carrying the can, again, we say, legally, professionally, and financially, um, to to ensure that patient care is not disrupted? Um, I, I think that this, it's time to change. And, and again, like people might say, uh, the conflict of interest um, of prescribing. and just, Again, if we're talking about something that has already been prescribed and a patient has been stabilised on and there's a number of criteria that we need to meet before supplying it, then I think that addresses that. Doctors can often retort and say, oh, well, if pharmacists are going to prescribe, well, we, yeah, we might just dispense and it's sort of this bolshy retort and I say to a doctor whenever a doctor says that to me whether it's uh, an elected official of an organisation or an individual I say I say to them you know what you actually can now you actually can now um, you know whether you'd get a PBS approval number that's a, that's a side issue but you can do that now and tell me it took me a week to get into your doctor's surgery to get an appointment if you start dispensing as well how long is it going to take to get an appointment so they can actually dispense now and can, do they have the capacity to do so? Yeah, well, that's questionable. And I think that we, we all need to be mature enough to move past those predictable, tired, repeated retorts. Catherine Duggan shares her views on conflicts of interest in prescribing, prescribing frameworks, optimising a patient's medication management, pharmacy achieving its potential, and being proactive rather than responsive about practice evolution. I, I think... Um... Prescribing is a logical um, function for a pharmacist to undertake. Um, and I know you have to put the safeguards in place, but let's face it, we're a risk-averse profession, so we won't do anything without those safeguards. Um, and the evidence is pretty categorical that where you have a pharmacist prescribing. They are as safe, if not safer, than other prescribers. That's not to say that they're 100% safe, and that's not to say that there's no risk with having a pharmacist prescribing. But, um, you know, the whole issues I, I've heard over Congress here, but also in other settings about the managing the conflict of um, prescribing and dispensing, all of those things can be managed. They are red herrings if they're put up as ways to not progress this. I think one of the things that I could put my hand on my heart in my previous role uh, be most proud of um, was the prescribing competency framework being led and held and owned by pharmacy and all of the other professions being part of that. So that's something really to aspire to. And I think, coming on to my previous comment about the ability to get the cocktail right, to get the absolute unique medicines that an individual needs, will involve taking things off as well as putting things on. Um, and that that's what we should be striving to, to do especially if you see an ageing population, the less medicine somebody can take with, um, you know, if they are um, moving into a more frail stage of life um, and as they get older, that surely is going to be optimum for that individual. Uh, so I think it's um, a 
think it's exciting and I think we can do it and I think we can put the safeguards in place as well. Chris Campbell discusses how prescribing will make pharmacists more responsible for their decisions. I like how you talked about prescribing across multiple settings as well. Prescribing is not necessarily just initiating a medication, it's optimising and also ceasing where appropriate. What I like about that as a process um, to expand where pharmacists go, it improves our decision-making skills where we're forced to make a decision and not defer to someone else. I think think that one, uh, perhaps it's another tipping point for for the profession is that consistently being comfortable to make a decision, being comfortable with the outcomes of that decision, then patients are going to be the benefits of that. Um, so prescribing is uh, such a, a, a clear pathway to it. And also what I like is that prescribing competencies are the same across professions. And looking at the competencies of a pharmacist, it just so happens that they're pretty much covered the prescribing competencies. So it's not a large leap, and I think that's wonderful that's happening internationally as well. Yeah, and it's a function of time, you know. Um, We've got to get very comfortable with this. You've got the whole of your career to become uh, the most senior point in your career. Don't rush it and learn to embrace the fact that the more often you see the simple problems that simple patients might have. I don't mean simple as in um, intellectual there. Getting the simple, simple right early in your career allows you then to be able to pinpoint what is complex, complicated and more risky. Um, I think it's the only way that pharmacy is going to achieve its potential and all of the the words that we say for our organisations, wherever there's a medicine, there should be a pharmacist, then we've got to be equipped to be able to prescribe. Otherwise, we're responsive rather than proactive. And we can do it. Graeme Smith discusses New Zealand and their experiences with prescribing pharmacists and nurse prescribing. He discusses pharmacists as a medication experts and how we can fill niche roles with the capacity to prescribe. Graeme also discusses the demographics of the healthcare profession, reclassification of certain prescription medication in New Zealand, as well as the collaborative prescribing and training requirements. If you listen to Michael Dooley yesterday in the panel discussion on, on pharmacy in the future, it became obvious to me that there's going to be an awful lot of niche roles in hospital pharmacy with additional training and credentialing that will develop. And in New Zealand, so far as community pharmacy is concerned, we've, we have just uh, commissioned a piece of work to develop a prescribing framework because we've, we've been very shy about championing the fact that in community pharmacy we actually prescribe every day but we don't call it prescribing. And, and in New Zealand, I don't know about in Australia, but in New Zealand we've got a very small number of prescribing pharmacists who are working pretty much as autonomous prescribers in general practice. We have community pharmacists every day prescribing products to patients and we have nothing in between. And we look at what nursing have done and they, they, we have nurse practitioners, we have delegated prescribers, we have condition-specific prescribers and... If, if pharmacy, as the medicines expert, don't reclaim that ground, nurses will take it over. I think there will be more pharmacist niche roles. And one of the reasons that, that we're looking at this prescribing framework is we can see some niche roles that pharmacists can, can fit into for which there's not a, there isn't a scope or a job description written at the moment. So, I mean, co- uh, the, the role of a collaborative continuation prescriber you know, I don't know what the, the 
general practice workforce statistics are like in Australia, but in New Zealand, uh, something like 25% of GP, our GP workforce is going to retire within 25 years. The nursing workforce, I think the average age in that is about 54, but pharmacists in New Zealand, 42% of our workforce are under the age of 36. So we've got a highly clinically trained and motivated workforce that's being underutilised. And, and, and that we, we see a role of a continuation prescriber being an entirely appropriate one with, with the right training in collaboration as being an appropriate use of the pharmacist's workforce for, in two respects. One is the train, the clinical training the pharmacist has and the other is the contribution to the system they're able to make because the demographics of the workfo- health workforce as a whole are changing. It's taken time for the public to become aware of, of some of the changes, but certainly trimethoprim's a good case in point. When it was first reclassified a couple of years ago, we were seeing maybe one person a month. Um, I'm now seeing three or four a week, as, as people have understood that if they've got an un- uncomplicated urinary tract infection, they can come and sit down with the pharmacist, have a consultation, and it's a proper clinical consultation with, with proper clinical record-keeping. And... Um, we can prescribe three days supply of trimethoprim, which for uncomplicated UTI works. And it's, it's cheaper for the patient than visiting the GP, and it's more convenient because they don't have to make an appointment. So that, that's one case in point. Um, one of the other recent ones, uh, almost 12 months into it now, is the resupply of selected oral contraceptives. And uh, we thought that would be quite slow to take off, but it's been very surprising how many... Um, particularly professional working women to whom time is precious would, would far sooner pop into the pharmacy for a 15-minute consult than make an appointment to go to the doctor. So that's tracking along really well too. And we're getting pretty broad acceptance now from our medical colleagues that this is an appropriate thing for pharmacists to be doing. Great. So the medical colleagues, did it take them a while to get on board? Or? It, took, it did take a while. The, the, the oral contraceptive reclassification... Um, spent almost three years at the Medicines Reclassification Committee before we got it to a form that our medical colleagues were happy with because originally we wanted pharmacists to be able to initiate. Um, the, the legislation we've got now in simple terms says that a pharmacist may resupply uh, select, selected oral contraceptives that have been prescribed by a GP within the last three years. And there are parameters around... Um, when a full consultation has to be done and when a, when a short consultation has to be done. So a full consultation has to be done once every 12 months and a short consultation once every six months with, with just a blood pressure and a few questions. But the GPs were happy with that. And, and, and it, it took away a wee bit of um, their, their workload. Another one that, that's been quite surprising, and it's only taken three years of evolution, has been flu injections. Um, for the first time this year, I've had my medical colleagues referring people to me for flu jabs but when they just don't have any capacity to fit people in or it's getting late in the season they run out of stock. Uh, the first year we got opposition, the second year we got grudging acceptance and now we're getting referrals. Uh, and that's, that's not to say there aren't still challenges and, and, and that we don't have um, some... Um, entrenched views from, from, from certain sectors of the medical profession that pharmacists shouldn't be doing anything like this. But I think the key to, to getting the GPs on side is to make sure that these services are offered in a collaborative manner so that it benefits the patient and the system.
I think there will be more pharmacists niche roles. And one of the reasons that, that we're looking at this prescribing framework is we can see some niche roles that pharmacists can, can fit into for which there's not a, there isn't a scope or a job description written at the moment. So, I mean, co- uh, the, the role of a collaborative continuation prescriber. You know, I don't know what the, the general practice workforce statistics are like in Australia, but in New Zealand, uh, something like 25% of GP, our GP workforce is going to retire within 25 years. The nursing workforce, I think the average age in that is about 54, but pharmacists in New Zealand, 42% of our workforce are under the age of 36. So we've got a highly clinically trained and motivated workforce that's being underutilised. And, and, and that we, we see a role of a continuation prescriber being an entirely appropriate one with, with the right training in collaboration as being an appropriate use of the pharmacist's workforce for, in two respects. One is the, train, the clinical training the pharmacist has and the other is the contribution to the system they're able to make because the demographics of the workfo- health workforce as a whole are changing. Ultimately, there will be other reclassifications, and um, it makes sense for a lot of reasons. It makes sense because it's, if you put the patient in the centre, um, for, for a lot of conditions that are not life-threatening and are not chronic, um, it, 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 people want accessibility. And pharmacists are appropriately trained to, to, to be able to sell way more than we do now. And, and I mean, with, with some specific drugs, it may require a little bit of extra training. But um, I certainly see that that being an uh, increasing field of opportunity in New Zealand, particularly with the with the workforce demographics that I described in answering an earlier question, where we've got an ageing population of GPs and we're likely to face a GP shortage in New Zealand. So if you look at what's happened in England, the, there's now there's, I think it's getting up to about two thousand pharmacists working in general practice in various different roles, and they've had to do that because they've got such a manpower crisis there. My feeling is that in New Zealand we're about four or five years behind the UK. Ravi Sharma discusses UK experiences with independent prescribing, the differentiation between supplementary prescribing and independent prescribing. He also discusses postgraduate training and requirements for the undergraduate courses as well as the scope of prescribing following graduation, the future of pharmacist prescribing, and some real-life situations involving pharmacist prescribing. So I think it would be useful to understand what, from the UK perspective, and what's in legislation about non-medical prescribers, and that's a common definition that's used to healthcare professionals who are not doctors or dentists, who have um, received an advanced clinical qualification that allows them legally to prescribe medicines, dressings and appliances. And that can, non-medical prescribers are generally pharmacists, nurses and certain allied healthcare professionals who are all form part of their, and are registered to their regulatory bodies, so have to adhere to the professional standards of those bodies. I think the Department of Health see three levels of prescribing. One of that is sort of community nurse prescribing that generally happens with health visitors and community nurses. There is supplementary prescribing, which is more like the Australian collaborative prescribing model. And there is the third one, which is an independent prescriber, which or independent prescribing, which is what I am at the moment as a, as a clinician working in general practice. So the differences between supplementary prescribing and independent prescribing, because they're applicable to the pharmacy profession, would be the supplementary prescribing is a voluntary arrangement and an agreement with an independent prescriber, such as a doctor or dentist, with a supplementary prescriber, in this case a pharmacist, 
to implement a specific agreed clinical management plan um, with the patient's agreement. And with that, it's a collaborative prescribing agreement around a specific or various types of medical conditions to prescribe certain prescriptions or medicines within that agreement as well. And it truly embraces the ability to work collaboratively together for the better of patient care and safety. And it's really useful in developing your scope of practice and competence within that as well. Independent prescribing is where you are the clinician that is responsible as an independent prescriber, as, as like a doctor and dentist is, to be able to prescribe a medicine that you're responsible for and that you're responsible for monitoring the impact of that prescription as well as an autonomous clinician, essentially. So I think even up until today, you still have to go for your uh, postgraduate uh, award or certificate to be able to become a um, pharmacist prescriber. It's generally a six-month course, and it is credit-bearing. So it's generally 30 credits to become an independent prescribing clinician. Um, Obviously, as part of that, you reflect and develop a portfolio. And I think from when I did the course as well, it helped me reflect on my own personal development plan of areas that I thought I needed to work on as a practitioner to make me a better clinician on a day-to-day basis, but also to make me a better prescriber. So at the current moment in time, I think everyone at the moment needs to go through that course before they have to, before they're allowed to become a prescriber and get onto the General Pharmaceutical Council register as an, annotate, as an annotated um, prescriber on that as well. So in, in the UK, there's entry requirements to do the non-medical prescribing courses, what they call it, or to become a pharmacist prescriber. You have to be reg- um, registered to the General Pharmaceutical Council, first qualification. Um, you need to have at least two years post-registration experience in a patient-orientated role. That can be in community, primary care, hospital, other various patient-facing roles as well. You would need to be able to showcase there is a service need for that prescriber to go into. You would need to have a sign-up by a designated medical practitioner, and I can explain a bit more about that in a bit. Um, You would need to be able to demonstrate a scope of practice and competence as well as, in some cases, a letter from your employer saying they've released your capacity to go and do the independent prescribing course uh, and, and get your prescribing qualification as well. Okay. All right. And so let's say it's an independent prescriber. Do you, are you prescribing within a specific area or do you have a, the capacity to prescribe for... So Whatever in, comes across your door, I guess. It's a, it's a good question, again. Um, and I suppose when you're on the... Uh, course for non-medical prescribing to become an independent prescriber they will firstly teach you about what safe and good prescribing looks like that's one of the key parts and aims of the role but particularly it will help you focus on one particular clinical area within your portfolio development so say for instance I focused on diabetes when I was doing my postgraduate course and then the second bit is to make sure you hit all the learner outcomes associated with the general pharmaceutical Council's standards on non-medical prescribers. I would say that the non-medical prescribing course teaches you how to be a good prescriber. It doesn't necessarily make you a specialist in that one particular area of clinical practice, but once you do receive your qualification, you can have the ability to prescribe any medicine that's licensed within the British National Formula, any unlicensed medicines, and any control drugs. So essentially you have equal prescribing rights to a doctor in the UK. But 
you have to always work within your scope of practice and competence. You wouldn't say to me if I had done three years of really developing my diabetes speciality that I could competently then go and prescribe it in mental health because I have never done any CPD or portfolio work to help me prescribe in that area. However, if I then did lots of CPD, created a portfolio and a development plan in mental health in a particular area of prescribing, then I could potentially get quality disorder and I could develop my competency as being competent to prescribe in mental health. But most importantly, it's up to us as clinicians to help us understand that. Do I feel comfortable about signing this prescription? I am accountable for this prescription. Do I feel safe to prescribe it? And if you are questioning that, then it's best you don't sign that prescription equally. But, you know, if you do, feeling confident, you understand it, you know how you're going to monitor that individual, you know the impact it's going to make, then I think that would be safe to do so. You mentioned the approval from the general practitioner as part of the... Yes. What does that involve? So it would be... So they, we have something called the designated medical practitioner, which is um, deemed under legislation at the moment as being a doctor or a dentist. Now, as part of your non-medical prescribing course, you have to have sign up by a designated medical practitioner to support your portfolio development, to enable you to do some shadowed hours of clinical practice but also to sign you off as being competent to be a safe prescriber working in the setting in which you will be working going forward. And I think what we've learned from the UK is that it's been a really good process to promote interprofessional working between doctors and pharmacists, particularly around non-medical prescribing in general practice. It has also enabled the confidence to build up across other healthcare professionals and the public. Um, and I think it's been, you know, I particularly loved learning alongside a GP. I'd never worked with a GP before personally that closely in terms of, and I learned so much during my time in shadowed practice um, with, with as part of my course. And it, it just enabled good conversations, conversation about medicines, diagnosis to flow quite freely and helped build a really good culture in our GP practice around being able to talk to each other quite openly and honestly, which I think is really good culture to have. Um, in the UK now, uh, with GPs, the number of GPs being, you know, uh, needing to deal with higher, de higher care demands of the public at the moment, the capacity of GPs to be supervisors as well as do their day-to-day -day stuff can be quite limited. And we think within the next year or so, legislation could pass on enabling senior pharmacist prescribers to potentially be your designated medical practitioners uh, or senior nurses. But I think there'll be lots of quality assurance to ensure that those supervisors are suitable to be able to do that level of supervision and signing off people as being prescribing. But I don't think the interprofessional nature of supervision should be ruined or, or that interprofessional way of working because I think that's really valuable as well. When people are actually working as independent prescribers, do they always do it in a clinic? Do they do it as a, in a consultation room in their pharmacy? How do the logistics work when they're actually doing the service so i think a key part of being a prescriber whether you are a collaborative prescriber supplementary prescriber or an independent prescriber um i think it i think collaboration and integration with the wider multidisciplinary team is a key part of prescribing and being able to communicate that prescribing with other healthcare professionals effectively i don't think prescribing should ever be done in a siloed approach to things because i think that's not good clinical practice, I don't think it's safe either. So I would always recommend that in any model that's being provided, there needs to be some form of joint 
partnership working with other healthcare professionals and good way of communicating the prescribing that has been done around that individual's clinical care. And if you're able to demonstrate that and do that safely, then I'm, I'm not, I'm, I think the, the setting in which it happens, I don't think should be up for discussion. As long as there's good governance, there's good accountability within it, and patients are on board with it, and other healthcare professionals are, then I think you should be able to do it in various settings. Can you share some of the settings that it is being used in? Yeah, so in the United Kingdom in particular, we're seeing greater use of pharmacist prescribers across the entire NHS. So some models of care which we have seen have been pharmacist prescribers in general practice. We've had pharmacist prescribers in aged care settings, such as care home settings in particular for aged aged of the elderly. We're seeing pharmacist prescribers in urgent care settings pharmacist prescribers in hospital pharmacy settings, in prison services, community services, mental health services, and also there are pharmacist prescribers working in community pharmacy as well. One of the gripes, I guess, that we get about around the idea of um, pharmacists being dis- uh, prescribers is this misconception that somebody will prescribe and then dispense their own prescription, um, which from a workflow point of view isn't a very practical way of doing things anyway. Yeah. Um, has, was there much um, controversy around that, whether that would happen in the UK or does that occur now? So I suppose there, there's lots of topics of discussions around that generally and it's important to, to remember it's about adhering to our professional standards as regulated healthcare professionals and for us the first standard is person-centred care to do no harm to a patient but also to put the patient that's under our care at the heart of everything we do. The guidance from various elements of the pharmacy profession, the medical profession and even the Department of Health and the NHS is that there should be a clear separation between prescribing and dispensing. Um, and I think that remains quite prominent for independent prescribing clinicians, particularly working in those in those areas that could bring up potential um, conflicts of interest, not saying they actually would be. Um, I think where you've got a collaborative prescribing partnership that outlines a robust service that has good accountability and governance around it and you've helped mitigate some of those risks... I think there are opportunities to do it and explore those type of models quite safely, provided there's good parameters and good protocols around it. It just needs to be well thought out in order to do it. But I don't. I think you know, as pharmacists, I would hope and not like to see anything which indicated there was any type of issues around prescribing and dispensing. And my personal reflection on, on on this over the last five years, in particular, I haven't seen anything that's come to my attention where that has been that has actually happened um, across the pharmacy profession. Yeah. I see it as being a safety issue because, you know, I, I dispense 350-odd scripts a day and I would have to speak to a doctor 10, 15 times a day. Mm. Um, so you can see, like, and these are people who are competent, yeah. good at their job, and still things slip past them. So um, I always see an importance for the separation of the roles but the reason is more that one person is very unlikely to pick up their own error hmm. yeah I, and I, I would have to agree that I think you know from my personal perspective I don't think an individual should prescribe and then go in there for dispense that same prescription that you've just prescribed I think that's unethical I don't think that's clinically safe and there will be lots of questions asked about that so I'm in full agreement with you around that in particular mm. And then um, an example of something that I've done today. So um, I have a patient who is um, worried about weight gain 
on her um, uh, methadone. So methadone, she's taking using methadone at the moment, and she's like, I've just realised that I've been gaining all this weight recently since I've been on the program, and I've got full leeway to adjust her dose as needed. You know, we, we adjust it to a point where it is where she's comfortable, no cravings, um, no withdrawal symptoms. That's clearly not intended, but if we drop it. And we get to a point where no, actually, I'm, I'm starting to get cravings, and I'm not, I'm not feeling safe. And we can go back up again, and we can adjust those doses within the parameters that have been set by um, her GP. And that's that's been a process that I've been doing as a um, as a harm minimization um, pharmacist for 14 years. Mm. But it's it's not seen as being a a role that's conducive to prescribing. But it's it's in all but mm. in all but legislation, it, it's the same process. Yeah, we wouldn't. We don't have that. That pharmacist can do that without without potentially being prescribers within that particular area and competency to showcase that. If we got a prescription that outlined the quantity that's being taken, but done by a specialist or a substance misuse unit, we would have to adhere to that. And when there was issues around the prescribing or the dose of that, we would have to speak to the prescriber and speak to the the person who's receiving that prescription and come with an either new prescription or a new dose, but that would have to be prescribed. We wouldn't be able to alter it from a community pharmacy perspective okay. without the prescriber potentially writing a, a new prescription for it entirely. That's interesting. And so to be clear on this, what I'm saying there is that there's been a discussion with the prescriber okay. that this is a kind of parameters that I'm happy for you to adjust that patient's dose within to ensure that they are getting what they want out of the program. Fine. You don't tend to see that from the doctors who see harm minimization as not being harm minimization but as punishment. Mm. You see people who treat it as a punitive measure and they don't have any leeway. Wow. If they want to change something, they come back and see me and things like that. But So but, I would see nuances with that with your collaborative prescribing yeah. vision at the PSA in particular, where if it was, let's take it away from maybe... Uh, methadone for instance and say it was for someone who was diagnosed with hypertension yes. and you were able to alter the dose of ramipril for instance to meet their outcomes in particular uh, and you can go from any dose from a low dose to a higher dose quite safely and monitor that patient to reach an outcome I think that's a sensible approach to collaborative prescribing in an arrangement and an agreement with the doctor and the patient as well I think that's a sensible collaborative partnership there are two other examples that I can think of quite readily where pharmacists are involved with dose adjustments in a way that is not necessarily codified, but it's certainly accepted practice, which would certainly fit within the, um, the idea of, of collaborative prescribing. So one of those is INR-based uh, INR adjustments of warfarin, okay. and the other one is um, adjustments based on um, BGL and HbA1c readings for somebody with their insulin. So we have patients who, ha- who are on insulin who are expected to adjust their own doses yeah. based on the advice that they're being given by their doctor, yeah. but a, ge- a pharmacist is not in a position to be able to give that advice without it being you know, seen to be maybe a problem for your insurance at minimum or... You know, even professional misconduct. If somebody would complain about it, yeah. yet the patient would do that on their own without advice. Shane discusses the UK prescribing model and the model most likely for Australia. He discusses collaboration, patients achieving treatment goals, and what the future of pharmacist prescribing could look like for niche roles like aged care. One of the reasons I think that the UK uh, model around independent prescribing has proliferated is obviously because of their workforce. Um, challenges with regards to uh, medical practitioners 
Whilst we have that same similar challenge in Australia, it's certainly not as, as high. And that's where I think um, you know, there's the discussion around independent prescribing, but the, the models that will proliferate in Australia will be more collaborative prescribing. Uh, largely because I think community pharmacy has a significant role to play within that collaborative prescribing framework. And it's about entering an arrangement with a, um, uh, a GP around, may well be around certain conditions, hypertension, diabetes, pain management, for example, and the examples that you outlined there around harm minimisation is an example of that um, collaboration. And it's not about supervision. It's not a hierarchy. It's actually around collaboration between two skilled health professionals, um, a significant advantage for the community pharmacist being the accessibility uh, of that individual uh, and the close proximity um, that they'll have with the patient and the frequency of um, interaction. I think what that actually provides is a, a unique opportunity to be able to make sure that the treatment goals, which may well have been agreed or identified between the GP and the, and the patient, are actually reached. We, we know, for example, with hypertension, less than half of people actually achieve their treatment goals. Uh, and some of the work that's come out of Canada, um, especially around community pharmacy dose adjustment uh, for people with hypertension, suggests that those treatment goals can be uh, uh, attained um, more easily um, and actually deliver significant uh, savings uh, to the healthcare system. So I think the opportunity um, will be a little bit different in Australia um, because I think the focus around that collaborative prescribing will be where the significant opportunities rise. And I just sort of outlined community pharmacy there, but also think about pharmacists within general practice. And also, uh, and I think this is where uh, we will see significant gains from a health system point of view is in aged care. Uh, where you'll probably have, if I look uh, three or four years down the track and uh, try and crystal ball gaze, uh, see you know resident uh, pharmacists within an aged care uh, environment working with a broad set of uh, GPs who may deliver care to their uh, residents within an aged care facility who can actually take more responsibility for um, de-prescribing medicines, making sure that there's appropriate um, use of antibiotics... Um, uh, opioids, you know, all those types of things that we know that can actually be a little harmful in some respects to, to our aged residents, but, uh, you know, really taking responsibility and accountability. But again, under a collaborative framework. Yeah. Um, and a lot of that activity is actually already within scope of practice. There, there, to be frank, there isn't uh, a large difference uh, between making a recommendation to a medical practitioner to stop a drug and potentially commence another drug than actually doing it yourself. Um, and we actually know that some of the recommendations that are made in medication review reports aren't taken up. Some of those things are, are valid, but often it's just because of time pressures and the system issues. So I think uh, uh, from an aged care perspective, I think there's a lot of opportunity with regard to collaborative prescribing. Uh, and, and as I said before, it is a, would be a genuine collaboration between... Uh, uh, GPs and, and pharmacists within that setting. Ravi Sharma, Shane Jackson, Jared McMore and myself discuss the evidence coming from the UK from pharmacists prescribing as well as the impact on quality outcome frameworks. Um, but from a, uh, just to add to Shane's bit, from a UK perspective, the evidence that's coming out of the UK is showing that pharmacists working collaboratively 
alongside other healthcare professionals, really improve the way care is being delivered, improve patient care and safety, improve greater access to medicines, and produce value to the NHS and a return on investment. And it's showing that actually being a prescriber um, enables greater collaboration and in greater integration into the healthcare system as a profession. Can I ask you, do you have um, asthma plans in the UK? We do yep. have asthma plans. So <clears throat> for roughly 12 years, I've been doing asthma plans for patients who, who come back from a doctor who don't have one. Yeah. Um, so I recommend it to the doctors on a regular basis and I get patients who don't have one, so I started doing them. Um, and then I reckon six or so years after I started doing them, I had other pharmacists saying to me, how, how can you do an asthma plan? You know, you're not... It's, you know, is that something that pharmacists can do? And I'm like, why? Why isn't it something that we can do? It's formalising a discussion that people have about what your plan should be when you're going to move forward with treatment and reverse it back. And again, there's not a lot of difference between formulating an asthma plan and making sure people know how to implement it and escalate and de-escalate dosing than to have prescribed that medication in the first place. In the United Kingdom, every patient that is an, it's deemed as having asthma should absolutely have an asthma care plan. Yeah. They should have a copy on their medical records and an actual physical copy on them at all times yeah. to showcase their plan and their approach around their clinical care. And that's generally done in, in general by either a pharmacist or a nurse generally. Yeah. And the doctors can also do it as well, but generally they would care, they would redesign the workload to optimise the skills and expertise of other healthcare professionals in their team to enable doctors to focus on other areas of diagnostics that they probably need their expertise on as well. It's that care redesign element in using the skills and expertise of other healthcare professionals to help the patients that they, they, they that were within their remit and within their scope. So I was going to ask a question about quality outcome frameworks that the GPs used to... I don't know if they still have them. So, they, yep, they still do have them. So pharmacists prescribing, yeah. and how does that all work? It's a, it's a really great question. So between uh, 2000 and 2006 was the introduction of the new GP contract, and within that there was the outline of the quality outcome frameworks. And this... Um, framework focuses mainly on specific long-term conditions and within those long-term condition elements there will be various different quality outcome targets that GPs need to hit for their patients on that long-term condition or on, on that register and for that they receive a remuneration. So obviously this produces lots of opportunities for pharmacists and prescribers to work collaboratively with general practice teams and doctors to help deliver, improve patients care around long-term conditions but in long-term conditions we know most of the interventions generally uh, are medicine related and therefore also produces a great opportunity for pharmacists prescribers who are the experts in medicines to help ensure the public get the best use out of their medicines for those long-term conditions as well. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of the AJP podcast. If you have any comments, questions or suggestions about this episode, please visit the AJP forum at ajp.com.au and join the conversation. If you have any suggestions for future topics or would like to participate in the podcast, please send an email to ajppodcast at appco.com.au or follow us on Twitter at AJP podcast.